Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metazoa podcast, a show about nature by those who love nature. This is a continuation of the previous episode, episode two, where we talked about the wolf reintroduction in Colorado that recently happened. So for context, please do go back and listen to that episode. And without further ado, I am your host, Phoebe Carnes, a passionate biology major and your resident alcoholic. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Dunford, a biology-flavored comp sci major. And we are very excited to get back into the discussion about wolves. Um, so once again, go listen to episode two for context. But where we left off, we had just finished talking about the wolf reintroduction in Colorado. And what I think is really important to provide even more context for just this entire situation um, is to talk about the history of wolves in the United States. Because Jacob, let me tell you, it's wild. Okay. Wild. It's wild. Like, I knew it was kind of crazy when I started doing research about two weeks ago, but reading some of, like, the papers and the books that I had to, to read bits of, oh my gosh, this is insanity. True insanity. So, insanity. Crazy. <laughs> crazy. Um, so let's just start at the beginning, like every good story. And let me lay it out for you. America before the arrival of European settlers. Let me, let me, let me close my yeah, eyes. Close your eyes, eyes envision it. Envision this. Okay. North okay. America before the arrival of European settlers. There are wow. herds of bison millions strong grazing and roaming the plains. They're so fluffy. They're so fluffy and huge, massive. There are herds of elk and pronghorn and deer gallivanting in the fields. And you have grizzly bears in California and the Midwest. Yeah, California even. And across all of the United States, in every state, you had the gray wolf numbering in every state numbering at 250,000 to 500,000 strong across all of the United States. That's more than 2,800. It's, yes, much more than 2,800. Now, some estimates say that that number might be 2 million, even in the United States. Yeah, in the United States. Um, However... There's so many gray wolves. So many wolves. However, you know, know, I will say that number is up for debate, though, so take that with a grain of salt. But that 250,000 number is like the base that we would have had in the United States, roughly. You can open your eyes now, by the way. Um, no, I want to stay want, here. I, me too. Um, oh, man. I know, I know. I wish we could go back to simpler times, but alas. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the relationship between indigenous people and wolves before the arrival of European settlers. So for many of, of the indigenous tribes that were in the United States, wolves were very important, both spiritually and culturally. Um, Plains tribes described wolves as teachers and guides who helped the original people in their creation stories learn to hunt and settle the, the wilderness when they arrived to the Americas. For example, the Sioux called the wolf skunk Manitou Tonka, or the animal that looks like a dog but is a powerful spirit. Um, (laughs) really rolls off the tongue really rolls off the tongue and the Cree believe that divine wolves visited the earth when the northern lights would shine during winter which 
is, oh, is like a cool. scene that I think is just like someone put that in a movie or, or something. I mean, that's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And wolves across many tribes are also seen as creatures who could give hunters strength. Um, so, for example, the crow would dress in wolf skins when they were hunting because that gave them power and intelligence when they were out during a hunt, just like the wolf. But, but probably the tribe or one of the tribes that connected most with the wolves were the Pawnee. And, and the Pawnee inhabited modern-day Nebraska and Kansas. And they felt mm. such a strong kinship with wolves that the hand signal for their tribe that they would use to describe themselves was the exact same signal that they would use to describe wolves, which is so cool. Um, And neighboring tribes would actually refer to them as the wolf people. And in one of their stories, the first death that ever happened was a wolf killed by humans. And this is what ushered death into the world and ended mortality or ended immortality for all creatures, which... Is is a very ironic story, I think, as we're gonna as we're gonna find um, throughout this conversation. So somebody learned their lesson. Someone didn't learn their lesson. Um, so I, as you can see, there was kind of this interconnectedness between the people that were here and the wolves. There was this sort of mutual respect that they had for each other, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then I feel like every conservation story, at least in the United States begins with and then the europeans arrived (laughs) and (laughs) something about that a little bit a little bit it entails that bad things happened (laughs) so like an omen almost like an omen um crazy how that works so a little bit of backstory here the english colonists that would arrive to the americas probably had not actually encountered wolves in their life back in Europe because wolves had been extinct in Europe since the 1500s. So they had already eliminated the wolves over there in in their place. And even though none of these people had actually seen a wolf, most likely, um, there's a lot of folklore that still remained in these communities about wolves. So some of the, the legends from the Scottish Highlands that just really had a grip on these people spoke of wolves who would steal human corpses from graveyards. They would go in, they would dig up these human bodies. And That's so much work. But apparently... Did they, did they see wolves doing this? Because I feel like that's much more worth work than it's... The much more effort that it's worth. You know, I have a feeling that they saw a wolf in a graveyard and said, oh, that wolf, he's here digging up bodies. He's um, eating souls. Or, I mean, like, is it possible that, you know, someone had recently been buried and the wolf smelled it and dug it up? Sure. Probably. But but... I have a feeling this wasn't, like, a common occurrence that was happening. But this also tied into beliefs that wolves were capable of murdering souls. So Hmm. they would not allow you, essentially, to ascend to heaven was, like, the idea. They would kill the soul. So already, wolves are off to a bad start. And, and Christians especially, essentially, they, they viewed wolves as the antithesis of righteousness and persecutors of Christianity. This is probably due because there's a lot of wolf in sheep's clothing imagery um, in the Bible and other religious texts. And so one quote from, from a researcher that I read that I thought really encapsulate this, it, like this entire idea is, quote, wolves were creatures in a godless wilderness that the colonists believed they had a moral duty to subdue. 
Mm. Yeah. Godless wilderness. A godless wilderness. Moral duty to subdue. Okay. Yeah, the idea of a godless wilderness was was found in a lot of like the early writings of these colonists that that came to the United States. And some of these early writers would compare the house of wolves to quote a thousand demons marshalling their forces for the fight. And of course, the fight is referring to the fight of Christianity, right? Like the fight right. against persecutors and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so New England, which is what New York was, was sort of uh, called back then, that was prime wolf habitat. Um, and so the colonists, they unintentionally attracted wolves right into their camps because they brought livestock with them. So sheep and mm-hmm. cattle, obviously, that's going to attract predators, right? Um, wolves were not the only ones, but but really this was the start of the colonists growing hatred for wolves. Um, not only what kind of wolves lived in Europe, like that they would have encountered. Was it similar to the gray wolf, or like yeah, what, what did they, they, have? they were pretty similar. There was a couple of them. Um, like there, there was a different species in Spain and stuff like that. But but the ones up in Europe, I don't. I don't know what exact species that would be, or even if that species is still alive, but it would have probably been pretty similar to the gray wolf, maybe a bit smaller because they didn't have as much large megafauna like we do here. But mm-hmm. like probably the the look would have been pretty much identical to the gray wolf. Gotcha. So fewer livestock in these communities that the wolves would, would come in and, and kill. Um, that meant less resources for these struggling colonists, right? So by 1643, New Amsterdam, which is one of these first colonies, had a mere 20 sheep, which is a lot less than what they started with. I could not find what they started with, but only 20 sheep for the whole community. Not a lot. Not, not a lot of sheep. Not many sheep at all. And of course, you know, because there's so few, the prices of the animals and whatever products came for them would increase as well. And so this was just a problem for these people, right? And not only that, but the the colonies also resented the wolves for the quote unquote impact on game animals. Um, so deer and elk and fowl and turkeys and all these things were very plentiful in the forest, which was good for the people who arrived here. They had plenty of food, but as you can imagine, hunting laws did not exist at this time. That was not even a, probably a concept that these people had: is that you can overhunt something. Um, and and so <laughs> they're hunting year round, and and so and that makes sense that there would be scarcity of game because you're hunting them year round. So you you've probably killed a bunch of them, and then the ones that survived are like, "I'm getting out of here. This is crazy. This is dangerous. I'm leaving." <laughs> I'm leaving. Um, but you know they thought that the wolves were doing this and not not uh, them. Of course. I mean, is it gonna gonna be the people's fault? No, of course not. But, like, even though the colonists had all these, like, issues with the wolves, wolf attacks were not really a thing that happened. And that wasn't really something that the colonists would have feared during this time, at least based on all of the writings and stuff that we have. Um, so one writer even described uh, wolves fleeing from people and being, quote, afraid of us, end quote. Um, there was even a story. And, you know, how true the story is, we don't know. But I think it does. Uh, is the uh, is the story of wolves... In North America, or is it a story of, of, of North America? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and again, we don't know how true this story is, but I think it does highlight like the fact that these colonists really didn't think of wolves as 
predating on people or anything like that because there was a story of a woman who fell into a pit in 1630 and there just so happened to be a wolf that had fallen in that same pit like a day before or whatever and they both spent the night on total opposite sides of this pit just terrified of the other the wolf didn't attack her it was just on the other side shaking and and afraid until the people came and found her and rescued her. So as you can see, like they're, they're not telling stories of wolves that are like hunting or attacking people, it seems, which I think is very interesting. There were a few recorded attacks very early on in the colonization of the United States. But as noted by the colonists themselves, they attributed this to rabid individuals or wolves who are starving during really harsh winters or something. So... Even they recognize that a healthy wolf is not going to pose any sort of threat to a person. But, but even, even though there were some attacks, there, there's no, no data we have to show that this was something that happened often. This would be like a once in a blue moon sort of situation, right? But the spiritual concerns of these wolves being prosecutors of Christianity and being able to kill your soul and all these other terrible things that they said wolves were able to do. That's what really pushed forward these first eradication campaigns. So what they did is they, they had a bounty system, essentially. So hunters would get paid a certain amount of money for every wolf that they brought back dead. As you can imagine, the system corrupted very, very quickly because, <laughs> because there was no way for them to tell if the animals came from that jurisdiction. So so the idea here is there's all these little towns, right? Each town is going to have its own bounty. So a, a hunter could kill one wolf, go show it to his town and get his money. Then he's just going to go to another town, however many miles away, show them that same wolf and get another bounty for it. That's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the idea here. So, so that already was not a great system. Um, and they're destroying habitat too. They're expanding, they're building more um, buildings and towns and cities. And so habitat, not only for wolves, but for every, all the deer and the elk and everything else I had relied on, that's all getting destroyed. And, and we can correlate an expansion westward with decreases in wolf populations, mainly due to habitat loss. But these eradication campaigns were very successful in what they set out to do, even if they were corrupted. Wolves began to be described as, quote, a stain, foul stigma on civilization and enterprise, end quote. So the language now we're seeing is changing from just... It's very aggressive. It's very aggressive, very, very aggressive. Um, And very, like, visceral imagery as well. Mm. Um, Foul. A stain. A stain, a foul stigma, Exactly. And so by the 19th century, I know we're jumping forward a little bit here, but by the 19th century, wolves were completely extirpated from New England. So no longer could you find a wolf in New England where they had once been everywhere. Because as we said earlier, I mean, they heard them howling. Prime habitat. Yeah, prime habitat. They heard them howling. They encountered them often. And by the 20th century, so not even really a century later, wolves were extirpated from the West. Yeah, from the whole West, it's, <laughs> okay. it's like almost impossible to like imagine. Like you're like, there's no way that that's true, but that is what the data shows that it occurred. And what's also interesting is that during the same time frame, we see coyotes, which 
at one point were sort of um, isolated to the west, western United States, we see them start to move eastward. So as the wolves are disappearing, the coyotes are moving in, and predation on livestock is increasing from coyotes and wild dogs. I think that that's a very important, uh, important point to make. So, so mm-hmm. this whole campaign to end the predation on livestock and all that stuff, that totally failed. Did not work. Um, now, now we just have new predators that are doing the same thing at much higher oh, rates. Exactly. Imagine that. That's just how nature works. <laughs> I know. If that's crazy. There's a vacuum, a vacuum. Something will come along to fill it. I mean, who who would have guessed that you take an apex predator out of the ecosystem and now all the little predators are going to have a heyday because the wolves are not there anymore, you know? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. And coyotes pro- reproduce a lot faster than wolves do. Um, so, so now you have an even bigger problem on your hands. Good job, colonists. Um, habitat loss also leads to a decrease in the game mammals, the deer, the elk, the bison. Again, they just thought that this was the wolves eating everything. Mm-hmm. But people actually wanted to conserve those animals because we actually cared about those because um, they were our food source and the source of our clothing and all these other things. So every time something, a bison or an elk was killed by a wolf, this, this just fueled this, this hatred for them. Even if it was just like one elk every month or something that was killed by wolves, they just, it was a huge deal, right? And, and probably the normal average everyday citizen did not encounter any wolves in their lifetime, right? Because not only are they extirpated from all these places, but even before, wolves did not really encounter people that much. So their support on these campaigns were based entirely on the perception that they had of the wolves. And this came from folklore from fiction and supposed encounters that people had with them. So this is where we start to see a lot of the the very like Hollywood-esque fictionalized version of wolves where, you know, you have mm-hmm. all these huge packs and they're big and mean and scary and all these things. So some writings that we see during this time. So this is like 19th century into 20th century. Um, we see words used to describe wolves such as treacherous, deceitful, cruel, cowardly, and ravenous. Hmm. Yeah. That's... Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not a very pleasant picture. No, not a very pleasant picture at all. Um, and you, you even have some zoologists, some, some scientists who are falling into the same trap. So a prominent 19th century European zoologist... His name is Buffon. I, I don't know. I think he's French, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name right. Um, he hated wolves. He despised them. Okay. And he described them. He was very influential. So his words were like the gospel of the scientific word, world, right? So he described them as, quote, cruel murderers that smelled odious, had ferocious habits, savage aspects, and perverse dispositions. Those were his words. Hmm. So this is the, this is what the public is hearing (laughs) is these words being used. And it's not only in Europe. Now we have American scientists who are doing the same things. So famous American naturalists, William Hornaday. And uh, are you familiar with who William Hornaday is? 
I've heard of him, yeah. but I cannot remember who he is. Yeah, he well, he was like the the first um, director of the Bronx Zoo, but he was also played a huge role in the in the conservation and and really saving the American bison. Like he he was a very key player in that whole movement. So he was a conservationist, just not for wolves. Um, <laughs> so, so one of his 1914 writings reads as quote. Of all the wild animals in North America, none are more despicable than wolves. Despicable. There is no depth of meanness, treachery, or cruelty to which they do not cheerfully descend. What did they do to him? I, I don't know. Um, That's so, oh my God. It's, yeah, it's, it's bad. And, and you have all these, like, supposed stories that are coming out of places, um, like like Spain, and and I think part of these stories is number one, it's like exotic, right? If you're in America and you're hearing about stories in like Spain and Russia and these places that that are exotic, they're not here. But these stories would involve something like this group of soldiers. It's a cold winter's night, and, and they're they're walking home from war or something like that, and suddenly they are surrounded by a pack of 200 wolves and they are just these wolves decimate them these 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 men who are supposed to be the strongest and bravest of society are getting torn apart by these wolves so it's if that's the only thing the public is getting fed is these terrifying stories and this terrible information from the naturalists and, and scientists of that time it's no wonder that people hated wolves <laughs> like mm -hmm. It's 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 crazy, as I told you. This is wild. And I want to note this. To this day, as of the eighth of January, twenty twenty-four, not a single authenticated, unprovoked attack by a non rabid wolf has ever been recorded in, in the United States. Not a single one. <laughs> I I will give someone twenty dollars because that is all i have as a broke college student if they can find me one report of a wolf attack that was just completely unprovoked it just came up and attacked somebody i i dare you i dare all of you to do that and e even with this information uh, by the 20th century even people just still america hated wolves they hated wolves so much that the United States government made a declaration of, quote, warfare upon predatory animals, end quote. The U.S. really likes to declare war on nouns. We really do. Yeah. We really do. And they, they just, I mean, the whole wolf eradication thing has been happening for centuries, but they upped it by an incredible amount um, tenfold. Tenfold. So national parks, which are supposed to be the safe place for, for wildlife and, and plants and all these other things, they're killing wolves in national parks, in national forests. The park rangers themselves are going out there and, and annihilating and eradicating every wolf they see. And so wolves are being forced to retreat to these last strongholds. And by 1931... Every wolf had been exterminated from every single national park that was in existence at that point. Every single wolf from national parks. 
They used poison. They used hunting dogs. They used bounties, all of that in state, in local communities, even in a federal sense. But, you know, gradually these campaigns ceased and not because the government had come to their senses or people were like, hey, this is kind of not okay for us to do. But it's because they couldn't find wolves anymore. <laughs> you, you can't have an eradication campaign if there's nothing to eradicate. So by the 60s, there were still some like wolf kills reported, but th- they were so rare. And, and really the only state that did not lose all of their wolves in the lower 48, Alaska was different because that's so far away, right? But Minnesota was the only state that did not lose their wolves. And they were limited to very small areas like Isle Royale, which is now a national park. It became a park in the 40s. So now wolves are gone completely from the U.S. They're gone from at least 250,000, what, just like a little over three centuries ago. This was like, Mm -hmm. I think the 1950s is when wolves were like officially like gone from everywhere except Minnesota. Completely gone now. You would have some wolves that might uh, come into some of the the northern states from Canada, but they would be immediately killed. I mean, that would never happen today. (laughs) You would never see such a war on a species like that. I mean, it's it's almost hard to like process as as like a a conservationist, as a biologist. Like, how did we think that this was okay? Not that long ago. That's so upsetting. Like fifty years ago, we were doing this. Like, how, how did how did we think that this was okay? But sort of moving to happier times during this this time, there there was a slow rise in articles and scientists who were going against the centuries old grain. So there were some positive writings that began to make their way in the media about wolves sort of during the height of this government warfare on them. But these didn't really get a lot of traction in the public. And even even one writer at the time stated, quote, when you think about wolves, you don't really think biology, you think folklore, end quote, which I think really hits the nail on the, um, on the head there. But it wasn't really until the wilderness started disappearing at such a fast rate that the public's perception changed. Because suddenly we started to value the wild and the wilderness more because we were losing it so fast. Um, We started to make more national parks because we didn't want to lose these places when we had lost so many already. And so Mm -hmm. um, this sort of shift in public perception and attitudes towards wilderness is what encouraged Congress and the U.S. government to set aside more land to preserve the wild places, make more national parks, more national forests. And if you're going to set aside land to protect, it, it kind of entails that you're going to have to protect the animals and the plants there too. And that does include wolves, unfortunately, for these people who really didn't like wolves. So slowly we start to appreciate the bears and, the, and even the cougars. And then kind of at the very end, we start to appreciate wolves and we start to see, oh my gosh, actually they're vital to our ecosystems. We can't just go around exterminating them all. That doesn't work. Imagine that. Imagine that. Um, so this is the big moment right here that really changed it for the wolves. In 1973, Congress passed the Endangered Species Act, which very recently had its 50th year anniversary, actually. Um, so happy anniversary to the Endangered Species Act. <laughs> 
And this explicitly within the writing defines an endangered species as, quote, any species which is in danger of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of its range, end quote. So by definition of the Endangered Species Act, they are, in fact, an endangered species. Um, So now the government has no choice but to do something about that. And not only are we seeing sort of that perception change, but we're seeing more scientific knowledge, actual scientific knowledge, not just from these people who claim to be scientists but actually hated wolves. Um, We start to see this increase as well. So Durward Allen, who was a very famous wildlife biologist, he initiated a study on Isle Royale's wolves in 1949, so a few years before the Endangered Species Act was passed. This was a long-term study that continues to this day. So this study, even though he's not doing it anymore, this is still a study that provides valuable scientific information. And this is one of the first studies of its kind. He gained vast amounts of knowledge on pack structure and behavior, but also was able to train other biologists to do the same. And of course, this revealed that all those descriptions about wolves attacking people in numbers of like 200 and being ravenous and cruel and treacherous and all these other things was totally exaggerated, grossly so, (laughs) and very much incorrect. Who would have thought? Um, I know this is a shock to everyone listening. Mm -hmm. But they also showed, this is the most important thing, they also showed that the presence of wolves actually helps prey species like deer and moose and elk as they keep their populations from exceeding the carrying capacity. Also, who would have thought? So they discovered this kind of interesting trend where every 28 to 40 years, wolves increase rapidly in areas and deer populations drastically decrease. However, as soon as the wolf pups begin to starve because there's not enough prey in the area, the deer populations increase and rebuild. So it's sort of this up and down kind of wave-like mm-hmm. fluid. And, and this is what we see in most ecosystems. This is just something that happens in the ecology of, of these areas, right? And, and I think that was very important for people to realize is like, no, wolves are not killing all the prey. Actually, you killing the wolves is harming all the, all the animals now. It's harming the prey species you, you care so much about. You're ruining the balance. You're, you're totally ruining the balance. It's, it's kind of crazy that it took us that long to figure that out. And, and I guess, you know, we're kind of looking back at it with all the knowledge we have now. Of like, that's, that's basic ecology 101. It's, it's like, you need predators and prey, and they keep themselves in this, in this balance. And it fluctuates because nature's now perfect. Things happen. Diseases happen. There's movement of animals and populations. But for them, it's a balance and you take one of the pieces out of that and everything goes to heck. So now we have more information. We have the government now like, okay, I guess wolves are endangered. I guess we have to do something about that. And now we have Yellowstone. So Yellowstone National Park established in 1872. And when it was established, there were still wolves within the boundary. Of course, just a couple of years after this, in 1884, state of Montana of Montana issued a wolf bounty where trappers would receive $1 per wolf killed. Today, that is $31. Yeah. So not that much money um, for every wolf. It shows you just how much they valued these animals. (laughs) Like, they were worth (laughs) nothing. And in 1914, wolves are declared by the state as, quote, a decided menace to the herds of elk, deer, mountain sheep, and antelope, end quote, by the park superintendent, Extermination began soon after that. 
At least 150 wolves were killed within the park by 1920. The last known one was killed in 1926, even though there were some sightings afterwards. Um, but ex- they did like super extensive surveys in the 70s, and they could not find any. So those sightings were probably not of wolves or just of ones that were moving through from Canada or whatever. So 1987, this is after the Endangered Species Act, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service created the Northern Rocky Mountain Gray Wolf Recovery Plan. That's a mouthful. But what it, really, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It, it, it really doesn't. They, they, need, they could have come up with like an acronym or something. But it proposed an experimental population of wolves that should be reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park. So because they were an experimental population, this basically meant that they were non-essential, which we know now was not true. But this would allow wildlife management some more wriggle room. So they couldn't kill wolves, but they could like go back in and remove them if something crazy happened or whatever. It just allowed them to have some more options, essentially. However, uh, most scientists at the time were in agreement that the wolves would have no significant impact on pronghorn deer, bison, or bighorn sheep, Um, but they might drive out some of the coyotes and foxes from Yellowstone, which would not be a bad thing because they were kind of wrecking havoc on the ecosystems there. So 1991 rolls around. Congress provides some funding to the Fish and Wildlife Service in partnership with the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service to write up an environmental impact statement. So this is basically them laying out, like, this is what we think is going to happen based on all of our knowledge. Um, This took a long time, and there was a public commenting period, and 160,000 public comments were received by June of 1994. Like, never never before had any other environmental impact statement come close to that number. In fact, this was more public comments than any other other federal proposal at this time. It was insane. But happily, many of these had positive attitudes to the wolves and wolf reintroduction as, you know, we kind of talked about. Public perception shifted like completely <laughs> um, at the beginning of, of like the 70s. So Secretary of the Interior at the time signed the record of final decision, which sounds really fancy, and the reintroduction of wolves was underway. Very exciting times. Cam Shawley, who is currently the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, has said about this whole process, quote, there is a lot we didn't get right in the first 90 to 100 years of this park's existence. You're telling me. Um, but I think we've done a good job, especially over the last three decades of putting the pieces back together in quote, very, very nice quote. So two shipments of wolves arrived from Jasper national park up in Canada in January of 1985. This is 14 wolves total. Um, similar to how they did the elk reintroduction. They kept them in these pins temporarily to acclimate. And these pins were located along Rose crystal and soda, Butt creeks the latter of which was just along the Lamar River. And that should ring a bell for some of the wildlife people out there because Lamar Valley now is the place to see wolves, like in the world. It is globally renowned for its wolf activity. But yeah, and so it's like, like I'm getting chills almost just like telling this story of the wolf reintroduction in Yellowstone. (laughs) Like it's it's so cool. Um, And of course, the public was not aware of exactly where these places were. So biologists would bring in chunks of elk, moose, or bison twice a week to give to the wolves, and they tried to keep human interaction to a minimum. They didn't want the wolves to get too habituated. Um, They even had rangers 
standing outside of these pins, guarding them. Like it was kind of a whole, a whole mission <laughs> um, to bring these wolves back. Each wolf, of course, had a tracking collar. And then the day arrives, March of that year. The biologists, they go in and they just cut open parts of the fence. And that, that would let the wolves just leave at their leisure, right? Mm-hmm. By the end of the month, it took a little bit, but by the end of the month, the wolves had spread and established themselves along the park. And today, these packs are known as Rose Pack, Crystal Pack, and Soda Butt Pack, respectively, named after the creeks. <laughs> kind of cool that they're still around today. I think that's pretty awesome. So one year later, January of 1996, 17 more wolves arrived from Canada. They were also placed into pens along Rose and Crystal Creeks. Um, but now we have some some new creeks coming into play here. We have Nez Perce Creek, as well as the Blacktail area of the park. This one's not a creek, which I don't know. I kind of wish they had gone with the creek theme still, because that's kind of fun, but whatever. In April of that year, the pens are opened once again, and these wolves are also around. They are known as the Nez Perce Pack, the Chief Joseph Pack, the Lone Star Pair, which sounds like a great movie. And then the world-famous Druid Peak Pack. Have you heard of the Druid? The Druids? I have not, not the Druid Peak Pack, no. Jacob, it's like a soap opera. Like, if wolves soap had a soap opera, it would be this. Like, we should, do, we should do a special episode of the podcast just on that because it is, there's, like, betrayal and murder and forbidden love. Like, I'm telling you, it is <laughs> crazy, okay? Anyway, there were originally supposed to be five years of reintroduction, so they would bring in a new batch of wolves every five years. But these first two were so successful that they didn't bring any more after this this last group. Wow. Yeah. This was just so amazing that they did not expect it to be as successful as it was. So as expected, of course, the elk in the park, which was overpopulated anyway, um, decreased but this was perhaps unexpected, but elk movement changed because of the wolves. So so their patterns changed. So they would hang around closer to people um, because the wolves... Because the wolves didn't like them. Wolves don't like us. So that was a kind of interesting uh, observation that they made. Woody plants like willows grew taller because there was less herbivory. Because um, that's what the elk and the moose were eating on was all the willows. And now there's not enough elk and moose to eat on the willows, so the willows are able to grow back. Beaver populations increased drastically. This was perhaps the most shocking thing of all. And they built dams, and this changed the path of rivers and streams. I, I hope everyone out there, and if you haven't, watch. You can go on YouTube, and you can watch the video, How Wolves Changed Rivers. It is astounding stuff. Have you seen that video, Jacob? How Wolves Changed Rivers? I have not. Sh- I've, I've heard... This is a little bit about that story before, but I haven't I haven't watched that video. You should. It's I mean, oh my gosh, it's it's incredible. You would never think that wolves would bring beavers back, but wolves brought back the beavers. And and this is what we call a trophic cascade. Um and so we often see this with the return of keystone species. So like apex predators like wolves usually have impacts on everything else in the ecosystem because they play such an important role. Mm-hmm. And the wolves in Yellowstone are, I mean, this story was so incredible and they were so famous that researchers and photographers and, and tourists from all over the world have come to Yellowstone 
just for the chance to catch a glimpse of wolves in the wild. And we actually, we estimate that this brings in 30 to $60 million annually to the gateway communities around Yellowstone. People love wolves today and they will pay a lot of money awesome. to see. The, it's amazing. But, you know, as amazing as the Yellowstone story is, it's not without legal issues. And it faced some legal issues. There was a lot of lawsuits filed to try and stop the reintroductions. In December of 1997, there was one that actually gained some traction, and a judge ruled that the reintroduction violated the Endangered Species Act because there was no geographic separation between Yellowstone's packs and wolves that had established themselves elsewhere in Wyoming just a few years prior. So essentially his whole thing was like, well, there's some wolves that have come down from Canada. They're already in Wyoming. Technically, we didn't need to introduce them to Yellowstone. It was kind of like a gray area, weird decision, right? But I don't, I don't really harbor any sort of bad feelings to the judge because he did write that he reached this decision with, quote, utmost reluctance, end quote. Um, and he ordered for the removal of the wolves. But very importantly, he very specifically said not the killing of the wolves. So he wanted them removed, but not, not uh, lethally. But luckily... There were some appeals that happened, and in 2000, the Justice Department appealed the case, and the decision was reversed. So wolves were safe in Yellowstone. But outside of Yellowstone, it's a very different story. So since 2008, wolves have fluctuated from being endangered to not endangered in Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, and then they were eventually delisted. So they were, they were not considered an endangered species and not protected under the Endangered Species Act which is big because mm. now all those protections right. gone. They're gone. They're gone. All the protections, all the funding gone. At one point there was a population of 300 and at least 30 breeding pairs across um, three different recovery areas. This met the goal of the original reintroductions. And so they were like, well, now we don't need them to be endangered because we've met our goals essentially. But a lot of environmental groups successfully, they pointed out like, Hey, the original management plan was flawed because it didn't have requirements for a genetic connectivity because we didn't know anything about genetics really back then. So their whole argument is like, listen, we don't want these populations to get genetically bottlenecked. You need to make sure that there are populations that can interchange between each other. This population, mm -hmm. even though it met the original goals, does not have that. Luckily, they were able to argue that successfully. Wolves are relisted. Okay, this is also like a soap opera. Um, in 2011, a provision to delist wolves, once again, we're at it again, <laughs> was added to an important federal budget bill in Congress. So they snuck this one in at the very end. And so it was able to be passed. This was a sneaky move that really bugs me. This removed all the Endangered Species Act protections. And to this day... From, from wolves specifically from wolves, or yeah. in general? From wolves. Okay. So, so what happened is there was this really important bill. I don't remember what the bill was for, but it was like this important federal bill. And someone like put this in as just like a little like, oh, by the way, this also is going to do this. It's going to remove lists from the endangered or remove wolves from the Endangered Species Act. Hmm. And because there was an important federal bill, they passed it. And to this day... This is the only time Congress has removed a species from the Endangered Species Act. 
every other time it was under the guidance of the forest of the uh, fish and wildlife service that's important i think wow uh-huh luckily <laughs> if you're keeping track wolves are delisted now <laughs> A federal judge overturned this in February of 2022, not that long ago. And now wolves do have ESA protections. However, this does not cover wolves in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, which is like the places you can find wolves. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. There's like some, like Minnesota, they, they have ESA protections. Like there's some states that do, but like really... <laughs> Why are they not covered? Why? How did? I guess it was just one of those weird things where, well, we can't get these states, but at least we can get the everywhere else. Well, it's, those states just really not want want those protections, or was there just some weird legalities? Some of those states really, really fought to have those protections removed. So, like, unfortunately, there's only so much you can do when the state governments are like, no, we don't want these, you know. So. After it was delisted back in 2011, after wolves were delisted, states could now issue hunting licenses for any wolf outside of national parks. Any wolf. This also allowed any wolf. any wolf. This also allowed for snaring and trapping, which is a whole other topic that we don't need to get into today. But I have some certainly some ethical qualms with that. But state governments, particularly Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, wanted to reduce wolf populations. Shocker. Um, they argued the wolves were overpopulated in some areas and were significantly affecting elk populations. However, I want to make this note. Research suggests that elk populations have indeed fluctuated over the past few years, but not because of wolves. Oh no, primarily because of climate changes, which are affecting their patterns and where they're, where they're <laughs> going to get their food, and stress by hunters. Essentially, what's happening is biologists are finding that because it's getting warmer, elk are moving into deep woods or the high country to escape the wolves in the heat. And what does this mean if they're moving deeper into the woods in the high country? It means you're not going to see them as much. So people have a perception that all the elk are dying because all the, the wolves are eating all the elk. That there's less. The elk are, it's just because the elk are hiding. That's, that's it. So anyway, it's just a little note I wanted to... To add in here and also i want to add in this note I, I did the research i crunched the numbers okay the average wolf kills about two elk a month roughly some months it might be more some months it might be less right now there are 10 wolves in colorado so let's go with that each wolf every month 20 elk are dying to wolves we extrapolate that over a year. I'm just going to round the number up. That's like 150 elk, maybe, right? Or rounding up the numbers to make it easier in my brain. Mm -hmm. There are 300,000 elk in Colorado. 300,000. <laughs> there are so many elk in Colorado, in fact, that hunters... And I have, I have nothing against hunting. I think if you do it ethically and right good on you, whatever, right? But hunters, I couldn't find an exact number, but hunters certainly kill thousands of elk every single year. Thousands. Mm -hmm. And there are so many elk that they just repopulate themselves like nothing happened. So are we really concerned about the wolves killing all Over the elk? 150. <laughs> are, are we really making a big deal about that? I don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> so... Just a little side note there. This is kind of 
little, little bit of a sad thing, but back in at the end of 2021 and 2022, that's when the wolf season is kind of the the winter into fall winter season in, in, in these states, Montana and, and Wyoming and Idaho. There were 25 to 27 Yellowstone wolves that were shot or trapped outside the park. Now that that might not sound like a lot of wolves, but that is just a little bit under one third of all the wolves in the park. Because even though wolves have been doing good in Yellowstone, there's still really not that many of them in the park. So this was they have, they, it wasn't reintroduced very long ago. No, it really it, it really time. wasn't. And I, I don't know why we expect and by we I just mean these state governments. I don't know why they expect the wolves are just gonna stay in the park and that they should just stay in the park. Like Yellowstone's mm. big, but wolves they have very big territories because they are big animals, right? So there's only going to be a certain number that can fit inside of Yellowstone comfortably and not letting them expand outward doesn't make any sense from a conservation standpoint, from a like genetic integrity standpoint. It just, it doesn't make any sense to me, Mm -hmm. but, but this, this happened just a little bit after there, uh, some laws were passed that would allow hunters to hunt wolves at night and use bait to lure the wolves out. This is what is believed to have happened with the Yellowstone wolves, is that they were lured outside of the park boundary, and just like the second they stepped over the boundary were were killed, right? Mm -hmm. This got so bad that the superintendent of Yellowstone, Cam Shawley, had to make a statement. He said in an interview, quote, These past four to five months of basically gloves off, take wolves out through any means possible, it's highly concerning for us. Yeah, it is highly concerning. <laughs> you even have hunters like Ralph Johnson, who's a who's a legendary hunting guide just outside of Yellowstone National Park. If you're in the hunting community, you probably know who he is. But he also said in an interview, quote, a person can understand if you want one, one animal of something, just to respect it, just to have it. When you start killing like they're doing multiple, it's not even hunting. It's just killing is all it is. I totally don't agree with it. It's gross and it's sick is what it is, end quote. Wow. Could not agree more. When hunting guides are telling you that's not hunting, like legendary people in the community, (laughs) you have a problem. So Superintendent Sholly, he wrote to the governor of Montana at that time, Greg Gianforte, who also is kind of a piece of garbage, and asked him to pause the quotas around the park due to, quote, extraordinary numbers of wolves lost, end quote, including an entire pack, which was the Phantom Lake pack. Now, it's one thing that a third of Yellowstone wolves were killed. That's that's tragic. But to lose an entire pack, which is an entire family line, an entire genetic lineage that is now just gone. That's I mean, that that is insanity. That is that is so far past what conservation should be. It's it's mind-boggling to me that this was allowed to happen. And the governor, he he kind of defended the quotas a little bit, but there was so much media attention around this because it kind of seems to me like once you bring Yellowstone wolves into it, you're not gonna win that argument. People adore these wolves in Yellowstone, okay? And so the hunting was removed from districts around Yellowstone for that next season, thankfully. And so 
Superintendent Sholley, who I love, he's great. He further argued that the state's main reason for enacting this whole hunting season and these quotas anyway was concern over elk numbers and livestock predation. We've already gone over the elk numbers thing, but livestock predation. So here's some, here's some information for you. In 2022, a study found that wolves accounted for 0.7 to 1.3% of cow deaths. And when I say cow deaths, I don't mean like every cow that dies, we're including this. I just mean cows that we know were killed by some sort of animal. We're killed by wolves. We're killed by wolves. Like a little bit over 1%. Yeah. Sheep fatalities were a little bit higher at 0.8 to 3%. But I I think it's important to keep in mind that the numbers, um, again, are only out of deaths that we know were caused by some sort of creature, not the total deaths in the year. But also, these researchers conclude that we need better, like, recording methods for this because it's, sometimes it's hard um, to get these things properly recorded, right? Do you know what a majority of, of these deaths are caused by? Do you want to take a guess? Uh, it's, it's the meat industry. Well, that. They're sluttered. <laughs> there is that. Certainly more being killed for the meat industry than wolves. Oh, so okay, so we're talking quote unquote natural causes. Yeah, like the predation, like like, like what what animal is predating animal? most of these? Yeah, Ooh. it might shock you, but probably will. Coyotes. They they account for more than wolves, especially with the sheep. I got nothing. Wild dogs. Really, really by a long shot, <laughs> like. Well over 50%. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't... Okay. So the dogs we brought here. Yeah, man's best friend. Yeah, are betraying us and, and killing all of our livestock. <laughs> um, and, and so Sholly's like, first of all, here's this data which shows that you're wrong. But second of all, that doesn't apply because number one... The elk populations in Montana have exceeded the goals set by the Wildlife Commission for many years. Okay, so that's number one. (laughs) Number two, only one confirmed cow, one, was killed by a wolf over the last three years outside of Yellowstone. One. Wow. So why are we concerned about this thing that's not even happening? Doesn't make any sense. I just... Ugh, the pub- the public, like, we-, we talked about this in episode two a little bit, but bringing political biases into scientific discussions, as we can, as we see. Never ends well. Never ends well. It never ends well. And I think this is an important discussion to have, too, but, you know, th- these these ranchers and, and these livestock owners and these hunters who are concerned about these things happening, even though the data shows that. You know, those beliefs are not true. We 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 shouldn't just dismiss their concerns, because unfortunately, wolves are a political issue. We have to adapt to that because we can't change that. Right? This mm-hmm. is just what it is. So to adapt to that, we have to go into these communities. We have to talk to these people. We have to listen to their concerns, and then we have to have a conversation with them because. We, we we need these people to be educated, not only, but also to be able to it's trust. It's very hard to fight. Yeah. It's very yeah. hard to fight several centuries of, stig- of negative stigma. It is. And, you know, I, I think 
something that I've heard from some people that I also agree with is when you, you live in these smaller communities, even though on a broad scale across the United States, wolves don't do anything to livestock, if you have just a small herd of cows on your farm or whatever, and you have five of them get killed by wolves, let's just say, on a like nationwide scale, that's nothing. But on your small farm- On a personal scale? Mm. Where maybe you have 20 cows or something, that's going to seem huge. And that is huge. We don't need to just dismiss those concerns. Those are valid concerns, and, and this is people's livelihood. That's important. We can't just dismiss that. But I think this is a very delicate balance that we have to find between communities' concerns and the, the actual like scientific data, which says, no, we need wolves. We can't just we can't just open hunting seasons and kill one third of Yellowstone's wolves and just expect that to be okay. <laughs> I don't know. What do you What do you think about that? I uh, no. I I agree. I, I feel like that when you combine, when you try and pull politics into a scientific discussion, things things go awry. People are blinded by how they feel rather than what they see. Um, and science is not about what you feel. No. It's, or um, sci- science is about is about the data. It's not about the the um, why. It's the how. And people get blinded about by that when they bring in politics. But with that said, education is incredibly important, and you are not going to get anywhere by dismissing people. Mm-hmm. The the only way for, forward is through uh, compromise and through connection. So I, I I agree. Yeah, and you know I don't know if I I don't have a solution for how to to bridge this gap that there is, but. I, I do think better education is a big part of that. Um, and also, also just making these communities feel like they're being listened to, you know. Um, mm-hmm. In episode two, we talked about the wolf reintroduction in Colorado. And, and we talked a little bit about how some of these these ranchers and livestock owners and stuff, um, even though that was a public vote, they still feel like they lost in a way. Like this is just something that's happening to them and they didn't really have a say in it. I, I think the state of Colorado tried to mitigate that, but I do kind of see where they're coming from. You know what I mean? And there's only so much you can do for that. That's right. I mean, there's only so much you can do. And the the perspective of those people is going to be, well, the state doesn't care about mm-hmm. the, about me or, or my business or my opinion. And that's that's not going to fare well, well for the wolves because that's, that's going to translate to the wolves. Um so, so it's 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 <laughs> this is a very complex issue, and I don't want to make it sound like like I'm just dismissing the 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 worries of these people. You know, as a scientist, I go based on the science, but also I I, I am very empathetic toward people, and I think we need to take that into mm-hmm. consideration too. Being in a small community like we've grown up in, um, even with the elk here too. I mean, why why not? Let's just bring the elk into it because I always bring the elk into things. Um, they're, they're, well, it's a very similar story. It's a very it's, similar it's story. Kind of how we ground ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you've seen that over the past few years. There's been increasing aggression toward the elk um, mm-hmm. because they are moving outside of the park boundary, and now they are getting into people's yards and gardens and flowers and all this other stuff. And now people are like, 
well, now we need to control the elk. Like, when's the hunting season going to happen? You know, um, so so we've seen very similar things. But I think going out to communities and educating them, talking to them about why these animals are important, that's vital. What's also vital, we need to figure out ways of coexistence. That's the most important thing. Yes, that's the word, coexistence. That's the biggest thing. And it's not going to be easy. Um, And I think we need to put more money into that kind of research. I I do remember hearing about, um, I think it was like some sort of noise or smell that people were putting on their fences that kept the wolves away because it like smelled like a larger animal or it was like something like that. I don't completely remember, but like there are ways of coexistence that are non-lethal to the wolves and to the Mm -hmm. livestock that will keep them both separated. Um, We just need to figure out what that balance is. So that that's me on my soapbox for, for this episode, I think. Um, (laughs) But I wanted to end. I agree. I I think if there's anything to take away from all this is is the idea of balance and that nature is all about Mm -hmm. balance. And while it gets messy, if there's anything we've learned is that when we put ourselves above nature, things fall apart. When we try and take pieces out and think we're, we, we know everything and that we're better then the balance unravels and the consequences there's dire dire consequences exactly um i think i just want to end on this note um of the indigenous impacts on the wolf conversation because we kind of started this episode talking about the indigenous connection with wolves and i i kind of wanted to end it on that same thing as well so Many conservation groups, many of these are led by indigenous peoples, have called upon the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, to issue emergency protections for wolves in the light of all this recent hunting that's gone on. Um, So Tom Rogers, he's the president of the Global Indigenous Council. He's a member of the Blackfeet tribe as well, the Blackfeet Nation. He has been advocating for stronger protections for wolves for many years now. And as of now, over 120 tribes and indigenous leaders have signed the WOLF, a treaty of cultural and environmental survival. So what they're kind of asking for is they want to help co-manage populations along with the federal government for both environmental and cultural reasons. So Rogers kind of explained that the wolves are at the cornerstone of the Blackfeet creation story. And, and this is very similar for, for many of the tribes that we talked about earlier, right, with the Pawnee, how wolves were super important to those people. And Rogers explained, quote, the wolf has always been our protector from the time of creation. When you leave this world, you travel the wolf's trail through the Milky Way and you become a star in the Milky Way. Be it wolves, be it grizzlies, be it bald eagles, they are our brothers and sisters and we view them as such. They are not something to be hung on a wall as some sort of trophy. We make offerings to them. We celebrate their lives. We do not reduce them to a wall ornament. Very, very powerful quote, I think. Um, Mm. Just reading that right now actually almost made me cry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And here's something. This also adds another layer of complexity to the story. But the story is complex and we need to appreciate that. But Rogers has drawn comparisons between the war on wolves that the state government um, and the the federal government did um, to manifest destiny, saying, quote, 
One by one, we knocked down your myths. Mm. You gave us the myth of Manifest Destiny, the myth of pristine national parks, and the myth of the doctrine of discovery. We are tired of your myth-making. We are tired of the lies. End quote. Ooh. I just got chills. It's got some fire to it. <laughs> it has some fire to it. Um, just final thoughts on this discussion. I think the history of wolves in the United States really highlights the worst of mankind. <laughs> that sounds harsh, <laughs> but I think it's the ignorance, <laughs> the blinding hatred, and just the misplaced blame that we put on everything that is not ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think as we begin to understand more about not only wolves, but just like nature and, and these animals that we have for so long ignored or, or had all these um, Hollywood-esque stereotypes and, and folklore mythology about, as, as we start to get past that and understand the science and, and the truth of how they interact, we're starting to see the fragility of our ecosystems. And, you know, you know conservation, Absolutely. it's not a perfect process. It's not perfect at all. There's so much work to do. But one quote from a biologist who I, I really love, Forrest Galante, he said a quote one time, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it was something along the lines of conservation is not about one person doing it perfectly. It's about hundreds, if not thousands of people doing it imperfectly. That's what matters. That's what's important, which I I 100% Mm. agree with, especially in the case of wolves. There's always going to be misinformation. But if we can just get people to compromise and and work together for for some sort of betterment for both this coexistence of humans and wolves, that's that's all we can ask for. So Mm, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share about this? Not really. It's... um. I knew a little bit about it, but it, it really is an amazing, complex story. With it really is a soap opera. With so many, <laughs> so many ups and downs, twists yeah. and turns. Yep. And I suspect that it's it is far it is far from over. Um, but I think you're right. Compromise. It's that's the name of the game. Mm-hmm. And coexistence. All all the C words. All the C's. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. All the C's. You know, the, the story in Colorado, I think we're going to be getting lots of updates, I'm sure, as the year progresses. I just, I have a feeling that this is not the last <laughs> time we'll talk about it in recent months. Um, but I, I hope everyone really enjoyed part two. I, I know it was long, um, so I'm glad we split it into two parts. Um but I do hope you enjoyed and learned something. And I hope you have this conversation with people in your life, especially if you have people who are not completely sold on the idea of wolves. I'm sure we all know someone in our lives like that. Um, and I think this conversation is important, not just the wolf conversation, but just conversations about coexistence and conservation in general. Um, as we continue this podcast, we will be talking a lot about coexistence, I'm sure, because that is such a big part of conservation and of I think just being a human in this world where we share it with all these other creatures <laughs> like we 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 have no choice in figuring out coexistence we have to so once again thanks everyone for listening I hope you enjoyed um if you want to support the Metazoa podcast please follow us on all the social medias Instagram TikTok and Twitter at the Metazoa podcast we're trying to engage with our audience and we love and appreciate all of the feedback 
um, that we can get. We're really trying to make this the best that it can be. So if you have any sort of suggestions for us, things you want to see more of, things you want to see less of, things you want us to do, things you don't want us to do, you know, whatever it is, just please let us know. And tell us what you hated. Tell you what, <laughs> what was your favorite part. All the all the stuff. All the stuff. We really appreciate all of the people who listen to us and support us. So with that, thank you for listening to the Metazoa podcast. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.